How's everybody doing? Yeah. Man, I could not be more excited about being in a series just digging into the Psalms. And, you know, originally, I'll just tell you, the, uh, the title of the series was The Psychology of the Psalms, but I thought we might scare a few people away with that. I know, you know, I'm a, the behavioral sciences get me a little excited and I have a love affair with them. Um, but um, the Psalms are a language for the heart, the soul, and the mind. And I love the, the, the it's one of the reasons that I, I do love scripture. And one of the reasons I've fallen in love with the Bible over the years is that I do human behavior and the way that we react and interact with the world around us, but how the mind works, how we interact socially, the lenses that um, get created by our circumstances are all fascinating to me. And I feel like the Bible captures those things. And you can go all the way back into this ancient text and it's still relevant today. And it's, it just absolutely blows me away because people are still people and God created them. We're image bearers of the king. And we're always wanting to know God more. And we're also wanting to know who we are in relationship to God. I mean, that's what Gerald's reading about. Like, how, how is it that we relate with God? And, you know, when I look at the Psalms, the Psalms for me uh, have a, a personal, especially Psalm 27. It's why we're, we're kind of starting here. We'll probably move into some historical stuff next week. But for me, the Psalms personally um, have really came to life in 2005. I mean, I always knew that. I grew up in the church, grew up in a Christian school. Obviously, I knew the Psalms were right dead in the middle of the Bible, and there's 150 of them. Uh, but in terms of the impact, what are they there for? Why, did God, why are they a part of God's Word? Didn't really come to life for me until about 2005. And for many of you, you kind of, uh, some of you know some of my story, how I ended up in ministry, the, the, the journey that I took. So I won't I won't go the long route. I, if you want to know the entire story, because I'm going to dig into some things you're going to I really want to know more about that. I'll point you to a talk where I've talked a lot about it. But in, in about 2004, my life went from, you know, like anybody that grows up in the Southeast, I knew about church, been in lots of churches, been to a Christian school, religion, faith, knew about Christianity, would consider myself a Christian, you know, had said the prayer, done all the stuff. But Jesus was a small portion of my life. The bolt on, you know, let's, we got to have a little Jesus. The kids need to grow up in church. But then I'm going to live life. Then I'm going to have a job and I'm going to go and do what I'm going to do. And that's what a lot of us do. But you, it, at some point, there's this idea that if Jesus is who he says he is, and if we really believe in who he is, then, then all of life is about Jesus. But spiritually, I hadn't gone there, even though maybe in my head, I knew that that was what was supposed to be true. The life that I was living was not in that zone. And then God graciously woke me up in a pretty dramatic fashion. And that was 2004. And then a year later, even in the midst of me considering possibly going into ministry, I didn't know what God was going to do with me. I was just talking to everybody about Jesus. I, I knew that I loved what was going on in my life. I knew that I had, it was like I had discovered this, this the, what they talk about in Scripture. It's like the treasure in the field. And in 2005, I, I, about 10 o'clock at night, I started to get this weird sensation in my left arm. And I just was started a long journey of an undiagnosed neurological disorder, which I've talked about. And it started pretty mild and then got into a severe zone. And I battled with it for about three and a half years and sent me to one of the darkest places of anxiety, fear, depression, wondering what was going to happen, you know, with me, you know, going from doctor to doctor, MRI after MRI, talking about brain disease and progressive brain disease and lots of different things that you could be struck with and a lot of things that this could be and um, just an, a horrible time. And in the first two months, 
I was very faithful because my life, I had just woken up to who Jesus is, and Jesus saves and nothing else does. I'm going to trust Jesus. I'm going to be healed. This is what's going to happen. So there was a lot of praying going on in the Harmon household, especially from my wife because men get a cold and the house gets shut down. You know what I'm saying? Imagine an undiagnosed neurological disorder. She needs prayer, ladies. So you, you get into this, and I was faithful for about two months, and then I was mad, and then I got mad. And then I was just like, God, what are you doing? Because I went everywhere. Anywhere they had a prayer meeting, as, I, the more charismatic, the better. Do you swing from the chandeliers and pray in tongues? That's the one you want to go to when you were sick. So I was at everything, every single thing that there could be. Like, pray for me, do whatever, blow on me, push me over, lay me down, do anything if, if this thing will go away. And eventually I got mad. I was like, God, I've, I've woken up and I realized that you are everything. And now my life is in this pit. I'm in this dark place. And then I went into the, the season of, okay, doctors. I'm going to trust doctors. And I know some of your doctors in here, and I think you do amazing work, and you heal people uh, because God's given you gifts and all that. But I got to the point where I was so cynical after about two years of going down the road of doctors, going to Shands, going to Mayo, going to all of these different places, trying to figure out what's going on with me, and nobody had an answer to what was happening with me. So I all of a sudden, and Googling. I mean, of course you're going to Google and try to diagnose yourself. And if you do that, you're going to realize that you're dying tomorrow. So don't do the Googling. And that sent me further into the pit of depression. Now, in, in that season, and this is what I want to get to, I got to this place where I would wake up every, you know, late, early morning, late night, uh, two or three in the morning, and I would wake up just sweating with extreme uh, neuropathic pain on one side of my body or the other. And I would crawl out to the living room and I would just cry. And, I mean, I'm just being honest. My, I did it because I didn't want my wife, my wife had dealt with enough. I'm like, I don't want to wake her up at two in the morning every morning, you know, um, and her feel bad because that's what I had been doing for two years. And so I went out and eventually, just out of desperation, and I just want to make this point right here because I think that this isn't, there's, I mean, I don't want to, you know, start a series and go, man, this is going to be a real upper. Um, <laughs> but it didn't, there, it, 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 I was mad at this point. There wasn't this miraculous thing where all of a sudden, bing, of course, this is what I need to do. These are the things that just happened. And in the midst of these things, I was very frustrated with God. I was crying out to God. I didn't know what was going on. I didn't even want to talk to God. I didn't even want to be in church. I didn't even want to be a part of worship. I just want to make that point because I know, you know, in some ways it's like, you just need to engage with God and all things will get better and the unicorns will show up. And it just doesn't work that way. But somehow, by the power of the Holy Spirit, I grabbed this message version of the Psalms and I started reading them. One Psalm, Psalm 1 started right there. Didn't even know, really know. I was just like, it's right here. I'm just going to do it. And I was desperate, just tears, and did it. And I'd like to say, immediately, healing came over the body, and I was fine. But that is not what happened. But it became this habit. It became this discipline of, okay, if I wake up at 2 in the morning or 3 in the morning, I've got you know, this heavy pain and this heavy anxiety, this heaviness in my chest, I'm going to do this. And I just kept doing it and doing it, doing it, doing it. And then about six months into it, uh, Beth came up to me and just said, something's changed with you. I don't, I know you're still, she always was very careful to say, are you better? Because I'd be like, no, I'm not. You know, it's just not a good thing. So she's just like, I just want to, I tiptoeing. It was a lot of tiptoeing back then. Are you, you know, something's changed. The way you're engaging with the kids, the way that you're engaging in life. It's like you, you, you're alive again. I know you're in pain. I see it. I see you getting exhausted. I see you on your back a lot. I see you massaging yourself all the time. I know it's still there, but something you're counting. You, you are smiling for the first time. And, and I'm not kidding. I did not. I don't. 
it was so difficult to, to smile. Now, I would in front of other people, but I get home, you know, you ever, hey, everybody, yeah, it works great, it's great, I walk through the door, <sighs> you know, it's just, we hide, you know, that side of ourselves from people. And it had changed. And I didn't realize it then, then as much as I, I do now, but it, it had so much to do with what was going on and how God transforms with his word and what he does specifically with the Psalms, why, why are they there? And I never really asked the question, I've preached about this before, this idea of getting into God's word and immersing yourself in God's word, believing the truths that are true, reframing your mind by leveraging God's word. But I never really asked the question why. I never really dug into the, some of the areas that I really love to think about, which is behavioral science, and think about what's happening in the brain. How, if God created me this way, why is interacting with this book, why is it moving in these particular pages and reading the words of the psalmist, why, is this, why did that have a profound impact on my life? And, and, and I had this season where all of a sudden I, I kind of rose out of that. People would ask me, how are you doing? Well, I'm about 50% better. And then I would say 70%. And then I would say 85%. And then I would say 95% better. I mean, it was years. I mean, it was 2010. This all started in 2005. So by 2010, I was saying 95% better. Now, some of you know that January of 2021, I, it all came back in a roaring fashion. So, and I want to say that not for you to go, oh, wow, this is depressing. But I want you to understand this is life. This is life. 12 years later, all back. And it's not fun. Now, different strategies for sure in terms of navigating this season of my life. It's been a very surreal you know, couple of years. But, but I want to make that point because it, this isn't about necessarily, you know, you, you, you come up front after church and you're going to get healed and this is going to happen. And, and God can do that. And I've seen it happen time and time again. And I believe back then he healed me and I believe he'll heal me again. It's what I've got. I'm holding on to in this in, on this side of heaven. But, in, but, but walking through the valley of the shadow of death is what we do a lot here on, on planet Earth. If you live long enough I've said this before, you're going to bleed. But, but why, I wanted to ask the question for me, why was it so important? What does it, how beneficial are the Psalms? Why are they there? Are they something that we just read? How do we engage with the Psalms? Why did this have such a profound impact on me? And the more I study it and the more I talk to people, it's, it's universal. A lot of people have had a, a similar experience. And part of it is what we read in 2 Corinthians chapter uh, 10 verse 5, that we demolish arguments of every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. So there's something that's speaking in the mind. I don't have that verse on, on, on the scripture thing, but I would definitely write that one down to, to start this series, 2 Corinthians 10 5, that we demolish every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. There's an enemy, you're, the one that's in your mind, that's you, your own voice that lies to you, but also the enemy that wants to kill you, wants to destroy you, wants to take you out, wants to render you helpless in the kingdom of God, wants to, wants to render you helpless in your marriage, in your life, with your kids. He wants you in the pit. There's things that are setting themselves up against you, and we want to demolish those arguments, those voices in the head. And then it says, and we take captive what? Every thought. This is about the mind. I mean, we talk spiritually about life in, you know, what it looks like to live life spiritually in the heart and the soul. But this is about taking captive in the mind because the mind is a, it is a crazy 
beautiful, wonderful instrument, but it can be your worst enemy. So taking captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ, not obedient to you, not obedient to the enemy who wants to speak to you, not obedient to the voices from the past or the people that are around you, but obedient to Christ. I mean, it's for us, it's to, to not be conformed to the pattern of this world, which is developing our own systems listening and allowing the, the rest of the world to define what we think and what we believe and what our future looks like, but absorbing and understanding that we should have a renewal, a transformation of our mind that is having Christ's ideals and Christ's words captive in our, in our mind and in our thought. You know, I, there's a modern philosopher, Jason Silva, Brain Games, anybody watch Brain Games, but he's super, just absolutely a genius when it comes to philosophy and the, the, the boundary line of psychology. And he talks about this idea that every, I mean, all of us, I've said this in here many times, we all, no matter where you are, whether you're a middle school or high school or if you're young, there's, there's seasons where we go. I love as Megan was reading that psalm because it is life. You, you can almost feel the peaks and valleys. I trust you. I, I love being with you. It's great. Where are you? Where are you? Don't hide your face from me. I mean, you, you feel it. It's the rhythm of the Psalms. It almost feels like they shouldn't be there. Like, does he really trust God? Oh, he really trusts God. Oh, does he really? Are we supposed to really claim these words? Because it sounds like he's scared. Are we supposed to be scared and fearful? You, you kind of feel the peaks and valleys, but that's life. And we take the punches throughout life. We have good seasons. I, I think there's amazing things to experience on this side of heaven on planet earth. But we're going we're gonna to take some punches along the way. We're going to have things that cause trauma. We're going to have things that break our heart. We're going to have things that, that change us. And in the process of that, the circumstances, good and bad, they shape something in our lives. They shape the lenses in which we see the world. And our, everybody's got a different lens. It's why it takes a while for people to be in relationship with one another because you see it one way and I see it another way. But we all have these lenses that get developed. We all have these things that we see through that are developed from traumatic events that we have, that are developed from amazing experiences, are, are, are developed from this was successful, so I'm going to try it again. And it was successful over time. So this begins to develop my lens in which I react. And that helps me make decisions. This is, this is psychology. This is, this is what happens. This isn't something, some biblical principle. This is actually in life what happens. We begin to develop neurons that tell us this is the direction that we should go. This is how we should parent. This is how we should engage in life and our marriage. Here's the things I do subconsciously in relationships, and here's the things I do consciously because they've worked. Or here's the things that I do consciously because I'm scared and fearful and I want to protect myself from the injury that this person might cause me or any person might cause me because my past experience tells me that I can, people can hurt you. So we develop these lenses. The problem is we... we we see through the lens, we think through the lens, but we don't see the lens itself. We subconsciously might feel that it's there, but we, none of us are very aware of the lens. And how are we gonna crush a, a, a false and broken lens if we don't even know that it's there? If we haven't acknowledged that there's something, that there could be some bad things that have shaped the lens. If we don't even go in that place, and all of us have this. This is not something that, you know, I mean, the problem is, is by nature, human beings, we shield, we bottle, we, we, we redirect, and we squash our, our feelings. By nature, we shield everybody. We bottle, 
and we squash our feelings. Now, it's on different degrees. Some people live a bit more outside, right? And some people are a little bit more closed off and, you know, monotone in life. That doesn't mean that the monotone people are less good than the out there people or vice versa. But everybody does this. It's a protective thing. It's part of the, the, the fight, flight, and freeze response that's built into you. But we do it in, on a different layer of, of actualization. We don't just do it in survival because no, you're not just trying to figure out how to get food or you're not always fighting fires like, like Dave and, and Wes. You're not, you're not always in that, in that place where you really have to, your, your, your actual neurons and everything are firing in a certain way and chemicals are getting released because you're, you're doing something that you might die. But we protect ourselves in different ways. The problem is, is we, those things begin to remain in, in, in our bodies. In the, in the world that we react in now, because of where we are in the West, because of how we live life, because of advancement, because of technology, because of who we are as humans, those responses are used in different ways. Sometimes in bad ways, we begin to deny, we begin to bottle, we begin to squash feelings to protect ourselves when we shouldn't be. And that can cause some serious problems when we shield, bottle, redirect, and squash our feelings. And again, it's 100% of the population. You can go look at it statistically. There's not any human being that doesn't squash their feelings at some point, on some level. And the problem that it, it causes and, and, and why we do that is we, we do it, one, from a prideful and sinful standpoint, we do it to, to avoid showing weakness. I mean, I, I can only speak from a men's perspective, but men do this. I mean, when I grew up, men don't cry, right? I mean, that was what you're trying to do. You're, I mean, even as a kid, I remember, it, you know, scraping your knee or getting made fun of at school, coming home, and you're just trying, you know, hold it in. I'm going to be strong. And then you see your mom, and as soon as your mom goes, oh, it's like, Pah! you know? You got a bloody knee, and you don't even care about your running, and mom goes, oh, my, oh, my God. And you're like, what? You know, you don't even care until mom sees it. And they're like, oh, no, you got to fix it. You know, you immediately react. But for, you know, for, for me and you, we avoid showing weakness. Why? Because we want to we wanna show the world that we're in control. In our jobs, do we, I mean, we don't show weakness. You're going in the boardroom. You're not going to be the weakling that's in there, you know, just showing all your stuff and doing all your, it's like, I'm the one, I, I, I got to, you know, I am going to negotiate from a leverage and position of strength. I mean, you always want to be in that place. We're going to be strong. We're not going to show weakness because we want to show that we're in control, that we've got this. I got a new job, and everybody's coming by and asking me at the cubicle, how are you doing? Oh, I'm doing great. And you're like, I don't know what I'm doing. But everybody else, you're telling it, I'm great. I got this. It's on lockdown. What are you talking about? Reports coming out tomorrow. It's great. We, we, we do it to avoid showing weakness. And it, that's part of our sinful flesh and just pride. You know, I mean, there's some things that we don't want to bleed on everybody every moment and every thought. I mean, let's get practical. There's a, there's, a, there's a side of life where these are the things I share with this subset of people, and then there's the stuff that you share with the rest of the world. That's normal. But there's something broken about the way that we shield, bottle, redirect, and squash our feelings. The other thing is we do it to avoid getting hurt. We, we experience things. We have this fractured lens from trauma or things that have happened in the past or the way that we grew up or the way that we do things you know, the, the siblings that we've had, the parents that we've had, the things that have shaped us, we, we avoid it because we don't want to get hurt. We don't want to be that person that, that is too sensitive. We don't want to be that person, or, you know, that's, you know, the, the one that's always crying, the one that's always upset, the one that's always expressing their feelings. I want to be able to, I want to, be able to move past it. I'm strong enough to move past it. I want to forget that. 
It's too painful to think about dad. It's too painful to think about mom and the way that she treated. It's too painful to think about the absence of these people in my life. It's too painful to think about this person that, that I love that's battling cancer. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to spend more time running away from it. For me, when I was, especially in the beginning of undiagnosed neurological disorder, anybody that was going through it, and, I, and there's people in the room I know that have, are walking through similar situations, and I've been kind of the opposite now. I want to I hug you and love you. But back then, I, I would avoid anybody that was like, had anything, like somebody that had MS, I had a friend that had ALS, was tragic, that I just kind of dis- separated from them. Like I just couldn't, I didn't want to look at it because I was avoiding even thinking about it. It was too painful. It would, it would project me into the future thinking, is this my future? Is this what my, my life's going to look like? So you, you, would do, you do it to avoid the hurt and the, and the pain that it might cause. Redirecting because it's less painful than dealing with disappointment. I mean, sometimes we don't engage in certain relationships because we've had experiences in the past and we don't wanna be disappointed. We don't wanna be hurt. We don't wanna be heartbroken. But the problem is, is if we do this, this type of behavior, this avoidance, not in the, in the middle of it. You see a car accident, your body might go into shock and you might go into immediate fight, flight, or freeze response and you might not react. That is helpful. But if that continues after a couple of days, if that's a lifetime, that's when we're talking about it being something that can change the trajectory of your life. And the whole reason of even having this conversation of the, the, the merge of heart, soul, and mind, and psychology in the Psalms is because we want to be warriors in the kingdom of God. And if we, if we spend our lives completely self-focused in the process of self-salvation and trying to figure out how to navigate life, and we stumble along in this manner, we will be rendered helpless in the kingdom of God. And it's exactly what the enemy wants. He wants us not, we're not gonna avoid the valley of the shadow of death. And Jesus said in John 16, 33, in this life, what are you gonna have? Anybody? Trouble, trouble. You're gonna have trouble. Take heart, I've overcome the world. So we're gonna have the trouble. But, but he's given us so much by the power of his spirit to overcome the world. But the results of this and what we will do if we bottle, if, if we have this fractured lens, that we don't deal with. And I think we're starting to realize as human beings, we have to deal with our junk. We have to deal with what goes on when it comes to fear, when it comes to anxiety. We're at record levels, like I mean skyrocketing levels of using drugs to avoid dealing with what's going on inside. Now, there's a great reason to, 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 to use medication and allow doctors to help you. I mean, there's clinical things that are going on in the brain that need to be medicated. But there's also the easy pill, the easy drink, the easy thing that we can go to to just help me numb what's happened in my life. And the result of that is one, straight up denial, ignoring our circumstances, period. And sometimes people like, you know, that river that flows north called denial is actually kind of nice, right? But it absolutely can crush you. If you remain, and I've, over the last three years, especially walking through COVID and some difficult situations for people in pastoring in our, in our church, the idea of denial will, can absolutely wreck your life. I mean, there's physical things that can happen because you're in denial. You think everything is fine. I don't want to deal with this big pile over here. I have a sense that something's wrong over here. 
And meanwhile, there's a fire that's going on that you need to put out. But you think rainbows and unicorns, all's good. Everything's good. We're all good. The family's good. Things are going good. Meanwhile, there's an explosion over here. It's like the idea of cancer. Like I got, you know, a little spot right here needs to be dealt with at the, uh, the skin doctor. And I just, I don't, I just want, I, I don't even want to know. And what can happen at that point, right? And somebody's going to go to the doctor on Monday. Because they're going to be like, yeah, I got that thing. I should go get it taken care of. But you let it go. And you're just like, I don't want to go. I denial. I don't want to go to the doctor. I don't like to smell the doctor's office. I haven't been to the doctor in 12 years. And I don't, I, I don't even want to know that. I don't even want to look at it. Actually, I'm going to put a little Band-Aid over it. I just want to look at it. I want to deny it. Well, you might lose your arm. You might die because you've ignored something that you, somebody could have just put out a laser and went zip or popped it off or done whatever. And it's gone. Now you're dying. We do that with, the, with the, the lens of denial and we start to move past in this position and leave this big pile. And in the meantime, your marriage is falling apart. In the meantime, that sense that you have in your, in your brain that something's going on in your family that you should deal with, with your finances, with the world around you, and you're like, I need to deal with this. But it's easier to just stay the course and let things be the way they're being. And in the meantime, a lot of bad can happen. You can avoid something that, you know, could have saved you had there been a healthier mindset with our marriage, with addiction. The other thing, result, not just denial, but emotional buildup. I'm very familiar with this. Emotional buildup. This is, the Psalms are so beneficial in this area. But you're gonna, it's, things are gonna stack. You're not gonna think when you're bottling that it's gonna go anywhere. Maybe it's just leaking out slowly during the day. No, it doesn't. It stays there. Like for me, and I'm just getting practical, over the last few months, I've had a lot going on. Not only undiagnosed neurological disorders still plaguing me, back problems, some other things, but my dad passed away. I was bottling up all this stuff. Like just trying, I gotta grind, gotta get my job done, gotta preach, gotta do all that stuff. So you, you don't think it's going anywhere, but an indicator will be, and what I call it, I call it this, the emotional buildup. Mismatched situational emotion. I mean, does, does anybody, that's like, I, I just kind of phrase that myself. But have you ever like a mismatched situational emotion? My wife has seen me do this all the time. So I'm going through all of this and I'm doing okay with it. Like people ask, ask me how I'm doing. I'm fine. Derek's fine. And then I lost my wallet. And I, I, I'd like to say I handled it well, but it didn't. There was phone calls that was blaming everybody in the household. There was, you know, of course, it's not my fault. I didn't lose the wallet. There's no way I could have lost my wallet. I, I put it right here. That's where I always put it. This is where the wallet goes, and the wallet's not there. So somebody must have grabbed the wallet. Or didn't I hand the wallet to you? You put it in the thing, and we went, we went to the thing. Where'd you go? Yeah, it fell out, and you're pulling all the stuff out of your purse, and all your makeup was going everywhere. My wallet went out. That's what happened. I mean, that's what I said. Where's my wallet? I mean, it's all of a sudden mismatched. I mean, just over a wallet. I mean, dad dying, yes. Traumatic should be emotional response. Wallet, no. But I, ex I lost my mind. I do have my wallet. Look at this. I've had this wallet for 15 years. She's back. You know what? It was my fault too. Um, mismatched emotional response. We explode. And, and guess what? The, the result of that is the third thing. We, we, I mean, the relational tension of not being healthy of not dealing with your past trauma, of not, of not walking through and dealing with the fear and anxiety that sits in the heart. I almost killed myself, not because I was in pain, not because 
of the, the neurological things that were happening and the things I would wake up with and all the, the plaguing things, it was the distraction of it. But my mind almost wrecked my marriage, my relationship with my kids, my life. It was in my mind. If somehow, by the power of anything, I could get a hold of this, that would be 90% of it. I knew that that would be the case. It just goes on and on. And this bottling, physical health. I mean, I already have a physical problem. You want to stack on it another 90 to 100% of bad Leave that fear, that stress, that anxiety in place, and it will just absolutely mar up and destroy your physical health. And the, the sum total of that is what we do in that without God, without even dealing with it, is self-salvation. It's the problem in the garden. I can do this myself. I'm, I'm good enough to take care of this. I can fix this on my own. And we use our own strategies. We use the people around us. We use work or you know, whatever it is that we can do, medicate, addiction, Netflix, denial in any possible way, we use whatever we can to save ourselves, to be our own savior. It's the essence of sin is the pride that we have that we can do it. I can do this on my own. I can grind through this on my own. I can deal with this myself. But what's amazing, I mean, this is, and this is real talk about scripture, What's amazing about the Psalms, right in the middle of Scripture, is it all of a sudden gives us something. It gives us language for the heart, the soul, and the mind. It takes, it's, it's a way of crushing the old lens and grabbing hold of the true lens. The, the place where we can be completely and utterly and totally honest the catharsis of that, which is releasing all of this bottled up emotion. The Psalms gives us a platform to do something amazing. So if you got your Bible, Psalm 27, we're gonna move through these. I know I've, ta I've talked a lot to set the stage, but this is really where I wanna go in this series is talk about how practical and how powerful the Bible is, but specifically how amazing and merciful God is that he placed the Psalms right in the center of all these narratives of the redeeming story of Jesus, that you've got the Psalms. And they are, they're riveting if you dig into them. You know, Psalm 27, we don't know exactly where it comes from. You can make some guesses along the way that it was when David was on the run from Saul or David was, he had turned the corner and, and the, the battles against his enemies weren't going as well. Um, they, don't, don't, they don't really know. But you can definitely get the heart of David's struggle. David had, he was an amazing king, amazing, you know, known as the greatest king of Israel. You know, other than the king of kings, Jesus, David was the dude. But the dude went through it. And the dude made mistakes. The dude didn't always trust God with his life. So I want to look at four things that, that, that David was doing, that the psalmist was doing, that God is leading us to do, that actually put us in a better position to crush that lens, to deal with that fractured lens that every single one of us has, to help us in that place of what do we do when we bottle, when we deny, when we squash our feelings, when we hold on to these things. And for some of us, we don't mind being numb, but it is not the way that God has called us to live. It is not the way that we worship. It is not the way that we carry the gospel effectively. So if you look right in verse one, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. 
of whom shall I be afraid? Now look, I love what's happening here because when I first read this, people sent me Psalm 27 when I was walking through all my stuff. It just was this miracle that just got sent to me. I was thinking about praying about all the stuff's going on with you. It's 2005, Psalm 27. I mean, it's in 2006. I mean, I can, I can go back to emails and just search in my Gmail, Psalm 27, and I can't tell you how many people emailed it to me, how many people texted it to me. I mean, this was a foundational psalm that I read all the time. You know, you are my light, my salvation, whom shall I fear? You are the stronghold of my life, of whom shall I be afraid? Now, the way I used to think about what the psalmist, and David is the the author of this psalm, he authored a bunch of them, about 75 of the total 150. Some people think he wrote them all. He didn't write them all. It's a lot. There's about seven uh, psalmists. So you've got this proclamation. I used to think, I wish I believed that. Like he's, he's proclaiming, you are my light, my salvation. Of whom shall I fear? I, he doesn't fear. He knows that God's his light and his salvation. He's the stronghold of his life. Of whom shall he be afraid? He's the one, he, he gets it all. But then I realized as you read the rest of the psalm, and if you, if you were listening while Megan was reading, he's, he doesn't believe. He's making himself believe. He's in, the, he's in the tank. He's in the valley of the shadow of death and trying to tell himself not to fear any evil. He's in that same place. And he's saying, self, I need to, I need to why are you so downcast, oh my soul? Another psalm, right? That's preaching to yourself. Why are you downcast? Talking to himself. He's saying to himself and he's saying to God, I know that you're my light and my salvation, but I'm having trouble believing. And he's asking himself the question, why are you scared? Why are you afraid? Preach to yourself. This psalm gives us words and language that we can preach to ourselves and we need to preach to ourselves. We often listen to sermons and I do it too. Like, man, I know exactly who needs to hear this talk. It's so good and it is for Sally and man, you're gonna preach to yourself. This is the moment that you preach to yourself to say, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? What is it about my job? What is it about being important and successful? Why, why am I letting this dominate me? Why, why, what is it that I'm scared of at my job? What is it that I'm worried about? Why am I worried about this this thing that's going on in our family. What, what is taking me out? He's my light, my salvation. He's on my side. Why, why am I worried about, why am I so overtaken by an illness that hasn't taken me out yet? Still walking, still talking, still preaching, still living. You're my light, my salvation. I shouldn't fear. I shouldn't be. But, he, but the thing I love about it is the honesty. You gotta get honest with, but I'm, what did we sing? I believe I believe, but what? Help my unbelief. Right out of Mark. I mean, Jesus is, Jesus is actually on the scene in Mark. And the guy's coming with his sick daughter going, I believe, but help my unbelief. Because I'm having trouble. I'm struggling. Go on. He says, one thing I asked from the Lord. I love this. We're going to move around and kind of bounce through this. But one thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. I used to think the same thing here. Like, oh, he's the good guy that, that always loves going to church. He always loves, he's, he doesn't struggle. He's like, he loves, he, he knows that the presence of God is the best place that he should ever be. 
And I used to read the psalm thinking that, like, I just want to be like David, but I'm not. I don't think this way. I don't walk around all day long going, man, I just can't wait to be with the Lord. I mean, you might say those things if you're a liar, but the reality is, <laughs> is you're a lot like David. David wasn't thinking on the rooftop as he's looking at Bathsheba with no clothes on, going, man, I just can't wait to be in the temple of God. No, he wanted to be on the rooftop. I mean, let's just be honest. That's who David was. This is another case where he's proclaiming the things that he knows are true in his head, but his heart and his soul and his sinful nature were running in the other direction. And he knows this will kill me. This will destroy me. It almost did in the past. And he's saying, one thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek that I may dwell in the house of the Lord. He's like, I know that's the best place for me to be. I know that's where being in the presence of God is where I should be. I need to, number two, proclaim God is my desire. I mean, this is kind of a prescription. We're gonna have a lot of this on how, how you could write your own psalm by adding preach to yourself moments, by adding this proclamation that God is your desire. But being honest, he's reminding himself and confessing to God the truth about God's presence. He's like, I know what's true, but I'm struggling through it. That's why I'm having to verbalize it in a psalm. Verse five, it says, for in the day of trouble... Now think about, it. just put trouble, whatever trouble you can think of in your own life, things that you've walked through, for in the day of trouble, he will keep me safe in his dwelling. He will hide me in the shelter of his sacred tent and set me high upon a rock. And then, then my head will be exalted above my enemies who surround me. At his sacred tent, I will sacrifice with shouts of joy and I will sing and make music to the Lord. Look at verse five. For in the day of trouble, and then I go down to verse six, I will sing and make music to the Lord. That's, what this is, that's the whole essence of that, that passage. For in the day of trouble, I will sing and make music to the Lord. Seems like the hardest thing in the world, but it's what we're called to. Number three is the worship in the dark. We talked about this. We've had whole talks about worshiping in the dark. Paul and Silas in the prison. In the worst time, they had just been beat to a bloody pulp, didn't really know what else to do. And they weren't doing it because they expected the prison walls to swing open or the prison doors to swing open. They were doing it because they knew that this is what you do. They had read the Psalms. They knew in the valley of the shadow of death, when, when trouble comes, we sing the truths about God. We have to renew our mind. We have to change the way that we think because again, my pain, 90% was the fear of the future. Will I be able to hold my kids again? What will be the future? How will my family take care of themselves if this kills me? What's going to happen? All of that's there and stays there. But how do we renew our mind? We've got the Psalms to put words and language to the emotions and the things that we need to uncork, that we need to unbottle, and we need to lay before Jesus. We have so much in our heart, soul, and mind that needs to go before the Lord, needs to get out of here, needs to get out of here, and needs to be at his feet. Because he can deal with it. He can take it. We cannot. We need to worship in the dark. And, and it's not easy. It's not easy to look, look what he continues to say in verse nine. He says, do not hide. He goes right from saying, I'm, gonna, I'm in the day of trouble, I'm gonna sing and shout praises. And then what does he say? Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You have been my helper. Do not reject me or forsake me, God, my savior. Though my father and mother forsake me, the Lord will see me. He's saying, don't hide your, he's nervous. He's, he's in the middle of this because it's not easy to worship in the dark. I didn't want to. People used to drag me to worship things all the time when I was right in the middle of all this craziness. And I didn't want to be there. Everybody else is like, woo, Jesus. And I'm just like, 
you know, because I'm mad. I'm frustrated. And you should, you got to be honest. Before. It's okay. I love that this gives you permission to be honest before God and say things like, hey, don't hide your face from me. Well, everything that you read and you know and that you grew up hearing in Sunday school is that God's not going to leave you or forsake you. He's not going to hide his face from you. Why is David saying it? Because he's being honest. And we need to be honest. Do you ever worry and wonder where God is? I sure do. I look around at other people. I look around at my own circumstances and I'm like, dude, you know, like, where are you? What is going on? How could this happen? Verbalize it. But look how he ends. I love it. He says, though my father and mother forsake me, the Lord will receive me. I love those words because it's like the people that should love you the most. And what David's saying is the people that could empathize, should be able to empathize with me the most. They don't understand me. But when I see your face, I know that you understand. I mean, he's, he's letting, he's saying everybody, that when, when it gets down to the father and mother forsaking you, that's everybody. Nobody can save me. Nobody can rescue me. No situation or circumstance. But guess what? The Lord will receive me. He's dealing with his pride and self-sufficiency. He's being honest to say, I can't do it. We often stay in that place of wanting to be Superman. In life, we live, as we become Christians, we're like, I'm gonna be Superman. Now that I've got Jesus, I'm gonna do all this amazing things for God. And then all of a sudden, we get stuck in these places of frustration because we're not Superman. And we think, I'm gonna do this, I'm gonna do this. God's made me capable of doing these things. He's made me capable of doing these things. And I'm gonna carry this banner. I'm gonna be all these things. And all of a sudden, those things don't happen. And what do we do? Because we're not Superman. We either we, we go to the side of blaming the world around us, blaming other people, or self-loathing because we're not awesome. Well, the, the truth is, is the only reason that we are awesome is because we're image bearers of the king. He is the sufficient one, and we are not. Yes, you may be great because God created you. You're beautifully and wonderfully made, but you're not Superman. He is. He is the one that is bigger than we thought he was, not you. And we often put him in that place. Now, the, the, one of the most powerful things about the psalm before we get to the last point is, is this. Is these, are, these are David's words. And there's other psalms that are Asaph's and then there's the sons of Korah and you've got different psalmists. But these are David's words. But guess, guess what? They're also God's words. The fact that he put these, these words here, do not hide your face from me in anger. That he put these words of pain, that he, he puts actual emotion in all of it. The loss and the pain of what it's like to have a relationship with your mother and father, what it's like to have loss, what it's like to lose a son, what it's like to, to shed so many tears that you, you flood your bed with tears all night long. Those are in the Psalms. This is not just David's words. They're God's words. And in some way, for me, as I was reading the Psalms, it was for the first time I thought, I might not get healed. I might, something might not you know, dramatically happen in this, but God gets me. He knows exactly where I am. He knows ex for, for some of these feelings are my feelings. I would read the Psalms and go, this is me. I flood my bed with tears all night long. I want to believe that he's my light, my salvation. Whom shall I fear? I wanted to think you set the sun, the moon, the stars in the sky, yet you care for me. You're mindful of me. You, you number the hairs on my head. You knit me together in my mother's womb. All of these things, I was like, these are the things I need to believe. <laughs> these are the things I need to hold on to. 
But these aren't just the words of a, a man just going through struggles. These are God's words. He put the 150 Psalms right in the middle of the Bible for you and me to give us language of the heart, soul, and the mind, for us to come honestly before God. John Piper says this. He says, the words of the psalmist are both man's words and God's words. What man expresses, God is expressing for his purposes. So powerful. Therefore, when we read, this, when we read and sing the psalms, our minds and hearts and our thinking and feeling are being shaped by God. That's the restructuring of the broken lens. That's, that's, that's it, it being fracturing the lens the enemy wants you to have and grabbing hold of the lens that God gives us. Lastly, just a couple more verses. I remain confident of this. I, I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Somebody needed to hear that today. I mean, just those words right there. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. I mean, that is sad for the soul. But then we hear 14, and it reminds us of how God works versus the way that we work. Wait for the Lord. Be strong, take heart, and wait for the Lord. Sometimes we wait, and that's four. We gotta proclaim that God is working for our good. When? Today. I love that Gerald said that, that Spurgeon quote. God's doing a thousand things, and you might, if you're lucky, three. You might see three. He's working. He is working in your waiting. I'm not just waiting on things to get better in heaven. We do wait, and it might be longer than you think, but, but he's working now. I think sometimes we bide our time, and we're like, okay, it's going to, you know, it's going to be crappy here. <laughs> We've got to look forward to heaven. That's a bunch of baloney. You can have joy here. I'm talking about off the charts, crazy joy. In the, in the, on the mountaintop and in the valley, God can bring things into your life that will change you. I mean, I, I always thought about this idea of pining for heaven. Like, you know, wait, wait for the Lord. It's, it's all gonna be good. He's gonna wipe every tear from every eye. Heaven's gonna be amazing. And that is absolutely true. But go try talk to middle schoolers about, you know, I know it's bad now. I know when you walk, I know you didn't make the team and all those guys hate you that are cool and you wanna be in their group, but heaven's gonna be awesome. It's gonna help them. They're gonna love that. Oh, this is, look at the, look with the hope. How about this? How about telling a middle schooler that's had his heart crushed because he's been rejected by everything that he wanted to be a part of? Remain confident of this. You'll see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. There'll be redemption here for you. There'll be a, there'll be a day when you will hold your head high and you will be thankful for those four boys that made fun of you because God's gonna redeem it in such a way that you'll be able to love them, but you'll be able to hold your head high because you are a child of the king. Something will change where you will see the goodness of the Lord and you will be able to laugh. You'll be able to sit around with your buddies at the fire and go, remember when that thing happened with the team and I was over here and everybody was over? I mean, it's gonna get redeemed. God's gonna do something extraordinary. How he does it, we don't know. What it looks like, we don't know. That's gonna happen in the land of the living. That's the hope that we need words and language for the heart and the soul and the mind, the honesty, that that's what we're looking for. But we gotta wait for it. We have to be strong, take heart, and wait. We gotta proclaim that God is working for our good today. There's treasure waiting for you in heaven, sure. But man, he's doing some amazing things right now, in this room right now. 
And then the culmination of that is Jesus. I mean, it says in Hebrews, it says, we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weakness. Do you, do you know this? This is Psychology 101. One of the most healing things for the mind and for the heart is empathy. Having a conversation with somebody that, that doesn't just go, oh man, that sucks that you had the whatever, but somebody that goes, I feel you, I get you. I've experienced that. I've, I've taken on that pain. I've walked that, I've been rejected. I've had my friends turn their back on me. I've had everything fall apart for me. I felt the weight of sin and death. I mean, think about Jesus. He is, he is the high priest, but the suffering savior that empathizes with our pain, with our temptation, with the things that we walk through, with the, with the rejection, with the, the brokenness, with the wondering on the cross going, God, God, why have you forsaken me? He gets me. Jesus gets you. The cross of Jesus Christ is absolutely it's a radiating, amplified psalm for you and me to put words and language to hope in the middle of disaster. He is, he is there for you and me. He will never leave us or forsake us. He emphasizes and empathizes with our plight. He's the one on the other side of the line interceding for us in heaven. And if God's for us, then who can be against us? Hard to believe, but we have to hold on to it. He is good. And he wants us to be whole, to sacrifice our pride, to repent of holding on and bottling up all of the stuff from the past and believing that the sins against us still hold weight when he died for them. So today as we sing, it might be hard for some of you that are walking through difficult circumstances. But put the words in your mouth. Sometimes that's what it takes. Sometimes it takes stepping into it and proclaiming, Jesus, you are better. There's no other place that I want to be or should be than in your presence. I believe, but help my unbelief. Let's stand. God, we love you. We love who you are. We love that you revolutionize our heart, our mind, and our soul with your word, with your holy scriptures. You can change everything about who we are, what parent, kind of parent we are, what kind of student we are, what kind of life we lead, how we carry the banner of your name and your fame to the people around us and to the world.